Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the podcast that tries to find the funny side of politics, but has very much realised that it's the bit that's face down in the dirt dead. This is episode 135, I'm Tina Duyeb, and this week the world has reeled in shock at New Zealand, where the government have responded to a vicious and upsetting terrorist attack by showing compassion, empathy for the victims, and talk of gun reform laws. What? What on earth are they doing? Haven't they heard of thoughts and prayers? How on earth will they make a profit from decisions like that? Where's all the victim blaming? So weird. It's like they've taken absolutely no lessons from any other world leaderships. In a horrific attack on two mosques, 50 people were killed by a white supremacist who many commentators struggled to call a terrorist, possibly because due to the colour of the gunman's skin, they were surprised that he hadn't chosen to ruin the lives of minorities by using his privilege to get elected to a position of power and then inflict a series of damaging policies and cuts instead. It was a very upsetting incident and the response to the disturbing massacre has mostly been an outpouring of love for the families and friends of those who died and were injured and a call for unity overall. But it has also raised awareness of the rise of the far right in those who already knew the far right was rising but had chosen to leave it in the oven for a bit longer to see if they could just get a scent around the house so it'd make people more interested in whatever self-serving ideology they were peddling. No, uh, it's not an attack on freedom of speech if you don't let a fascist speak on your national TV show, in the same way that refusing to smear bin juice around your face isn't detrimental to harmful bacteria. Leave it be, and eventually it'll die off or get eaten by rats before affecting anyone. It baffles me how many outlets are questioning where this violent hatred of Muslims has come from, as though they've been completely unaware of their own output for years. If your newspaper or news programme has spent the last 18 years calling Muslims terrorists or other hateful terms, or your governments have found unsubstantiated excuses to bomb Middle Eastern countries, or your nation has been allowed to vote on devastating decisions that empower the views of people terrified by anyone who isn't translucent white, and you're going, but how has this happened? Then I'm not sure you should be allowed to do basic things like drive, as you'll probably fall asleep at the wheel and then wake up wrapped around a lamppost in Birmingham and start questioning how you got there. Thoughts and much, much love to all those in Christchurch that were affected uh, or not affected, just everyone there. What a horrible, horrible event. Right, uh, now let's get the UK's bullshit out the way. 
Brexit, where there are never any steps forward, just constant steps back. As we fall over our shoelaces that the government have insisted we tie together to give us the upper hand in negotiations, assured that we can shout demands as we fail around on the floor like a pissed beetle. Last Tuesday saw Prime Minister and love child of the Pixar lamp and nurse Ratched, Theresa May, have her deal rejected again because it turns out politicians still don't like the changes she hasn't made. After it was promised to the Commons that May had an improved deal, the big question on the table that's now covered in various Brexit options and oversized questions and when oh when will someone just clear that table and serve dessert, sorry, the big question was what was actually improved. It looked very much the same, it smelled very much the same and it sounded pretty much entirely the same. Was the change of May's deal within? Had May given it a different backstory? Had it Stanislavski an objective change but we, as viewers, would only know by the finale? Who knows, but Attorney General and rejected Toby Jug, Geoffrey Cox, said the legal risk of being tied to the EU after Brexit remained unchanged, meaning that most of the extreme Brexiteers were still opposed to it as being tied to anything gives them weird public school flashbacks. Ireland said May's deal is just the UK talking to itself, which I guess we are prone to do rather than learn enough language to converse with anyone else. Former Foreign Secretary and eye holes poked into a raw chicken, Boris Johnson, said that the deal had reached the end of the road, as though quoting from his R&B group Boys to Man Babies. 149 votes was what May's deal was lost by, and with it, her voice, both politically and literally, as she once again croaked out that she was disappointed in the House's decision in a very much, it's not me, it's you kind of way. Why should I change my inadequate deal when it's you and your insistence on not just giving in that needs to change? Health Secretary and Life Vessel for Teeth, Matt Hancock, tweeted that there was a strong cabinet backing for the deal, which I guess there was, but unless they're secretly Spartans, it's like applauding the strength of a knackered mountain goat that's been swept away by an avalanche. The next day was Chancellor and what if we built a man entirely out of corrugated cardboard, Philip Hammond, announcing his spring statement, where he warned that the rejection of May's deal leaves a cloud of uncertainty over the economy. Except it's not a cloud of uncertainty, is it, Phil? It's steam emanating from the pissing that the Brexit mayhem is doing all over it. Hammond's statement was largely lacking in anything useful, but he announced provisions of £100 million for police forces in England to pay for overtime to tackle knife crime, which, considering the cuts that have been made to the police force, that means they'll now only be losing £600 million by 2020, and those who don't lose their jobs are going to have to work extra hours to make up for the government not wanting to actually deal with knife crime. Still, Hammond did also announce free sanitary products in schools, so if that includes sanitary towels, teenagers can take extra to double up as dressing for stab wounds. Phil called for MPs to put their differences aside and compromise over Brexit, which is an odd thing to ask for when your leader's biggest example of compromise is occasionally forcing herself to smile as she presents the same deal again and again. Then came the vote on whether the UK should leave without a deal. Environment Secretary and puppet they take to school to warn kids about not speaking to strangers, Michael Gove, spoke passionately about the dangers of a no deal, as did several other Conservatives, who then all voted against avoiding it. How are you meant to solve divisions in a party when most of the party ministers seem to be warring with the voices in their own heads? Ministers overwhelmingly voted to reject a no deal under any circumstances, but it wasn't a legally binding vote, so as was to be expected, it's mainly led to May telling everyone that actually the only way to avoid a no deal is by her deal that also no one wants. Then the next night, MPs voted against Labour MP and proof that it's impossible to wear round glasses without looking like a comical sidekick to Sherlock Holmes, Hilary Benn, his amendment to take control of Brexit from May if she couldn't find a way forward. It lost by two votes. So, MPs basically said they don't want May's deal, they don't want no deal, they also don't want to be in control of it themselves, but they don't want May in control of it as she obviously isn't. It really feels like there needs to be some sort of special button that can be pressed in these kinds of situations so that Parliament just collapses to the size of a marble and someone the entire 
entire country actually trusts, like, I don't know, David Attenborough, one of the BBC Breakfast presenters, can then just pop it in their pocket and sort everything out, or maybe just roll it into an open drain. An amendment on having a second referendum was also rejected, as was Labour's amendment basically asking if they can have a go. And after a string of surprising victories, the government also won on MPs voting to have an extension to Article 50, pushing the Brexit date past March the 29th, except it isn't a win because it's also not legally binding. The EU have to agree at first, and they're only going to do that if they're given a good enough reason to which isn't going to be just that May has slightly changed the paragraph spacing or finally put it all in a nice binder. So what now? Well, May was planning to bring back her vote yet again in the hope they'd just keep wearing everyone down until they gave in and voted for it, just so they didn't have to hear her talk again. But firstly, the DUP were not on side as there was no money involved, and then 40 Tory rebels told her they'd only vote for it if she quit straight after. May is basically now the unpopular kid in school who the teachers have told you you have to be nice to. Sure, we'll go see the film you want to see if you make sure you never ever hang out with me ever again afterwards as I just don't want to see your collection of insect legs that you keep in your pocket, weirdo. But even without those obstacles, Speaker and Hedgehog John Burkow has ruled that May can't have a meaningful vote 3 if her deal hasn't changed substantially, which means she's probably aiming to change the font and title as well as do some of it in coloured ink and the rest in memes. So, an extension maybe, except the EU have to agree to that and the chief Brexit negotiator and former host of Pebble Mill, Michel Barnier, says there's no majority in the EU for extending Article 50, but I'm guessing May will try to go ahead even if only 52% of them are keen. It seems dismembered eel penis Nigel Farage and what if Martin Kemp was a fascist Andy Wigmore have been trying to persuade the far-right Italian party Lega Nord to block any extensions. Which is odd as I thought those two were very much against foreign interference from Europe into British sovereignty. But if the EU agreed to it and an extension did happen, well it looks like it could mean the Brexit date is pushed back to June the 30th, which would be ideal as that's International Asteroid Day, meaning we can all spend it wishing for something to crash into us before we crash out. Speaking of Farage, which is sadly something that happens far too often for a man that I really believe should be placed in a deep well and only occasionally remembered so that people can shout echoey swear words into it, the March for Leave, which he promoted, started on Saturday. If started is the right word for a handful of shuffling angry idiots making their way through the rain like a zombie horde absolutely struggling to find brains. Only 350 people signed up with less actually attending and Farage said that he wouldn't be going for the whole thing because everything he does is a metaphor for everything he does. I was actually expecting him to vanish five minutes after the start before handing over to slapped ass cheek Paul Nuttall, who'd then tell everyone he completed 567 ultramarathons already, so this would be piss easy, before Farage kept scoping in just to tell everyone how much it had gone to shit now he'd left. Red to crap opinion, Isabel Oakshot said on Twitter that numbers were limited for security and that leave means leave were overwhelmed with offers, proving that despite it being their core support, they still can't spot bots. I'm pretty certain that by overwhelmed she actually did mean four spam emails, someone wanting to bring their dog and a sex bot that they invited but then it blocked them. Pictures that I've seen of the event make it very hard to distinguish whether it's a very poorly attended rally or a very well attended meat raffle. Anyway, good luck to them as nothing will thin out the ardent no-deal bunch if a second referendum occurs, quite like making all those oldies walk through the rain for several days. In other news, because somehow there is some, Deputy Labour leader and face on toast Tom Watson has set up the Future Britain group for Labour MPs who want to stay in the party but feel disillusioned, so want to join something that sounds like if Britain first worked out how to use electricity. Lord and Prince of Snarkness Peter Mandelson said the first meeting of 130 MPs represented in coming together of the TBGBs, which is his phrase for followers of Blair and Brown, but I think sounds a lot more like the heebie-jeebies, which similarly makes many feel uncomfortable despite being outdated. 
Aforementioned twat Boris Johnson said on streaming Baal radio site LBC that police spending on historic child sexual abuse allegations was being spaffed up a wall, which many are angry about him saying, but I think it could have been a compliment as he was just referring to a much-loved game that he played with his housemasters at Eton. And lastly, Lib Dem leader and farmer Bean Vince Cable is stepping down from his prime position in May. There's no clue as to who will replace him yet, but sources say possible contenders for this ever-diminishing party are either a plain digestive, a pair of khaki slacks, or the band Maroon 5. Ugh, I'm ill. Can you hear it? It's horrible, isn't it? It's probably quite horrible to listen to. I'm full of chest cough horrors, and I'd be honest, in any other normal week, I'd record a five-minute cough-filled apology to say I'm skipping this week of podcast in order to hack up my lungs off mic somewhere, but I couldn't leave you all this week, could I? What with all the votes that ultimately don't really mean anything and all the debates where everyone said things and absolutely didn't follow through with them? I mean, how could I abandon you this week when we all know that without this podcast, you'd still be in the know just as much as if you hadn't heard it? didn't watch the news and lived on the moon. Ah, just imagine the peace and quiet of living on the moon, eh? Sure, it'd be cold and have no atmosphere, but that's not that different to a lot of offices that I've previously worked in, with the difference being that they were full of people that I didn't like, so actually the moon is definitely better. Anyway, um, there's loads of news bits that I've missed on this week's show uh, because of illness. Uh, Turns out that having a chest cold thing makes it very hard to try and find any humour in subjects like the former Lib Dem leader being suspended because he knew about Cyril Smith's paedophilia. Comedy! There's no... No comedy in that. Um, got nothing about all the social media stuff. But on the other hand, I also had no space to put the Anna Subri as like if, while driving in the rain, you accidentally caught Robert Smith from The Cure in your headlights. I mean, how long should a podcast be? Tricky, isn't it? If a podcast is played in the forest and all the squirrels try to eat your smartphone, does it count as a listen? Look, all I'm saying is this week's show is what it is. Um, and after I've stopped recording, I'm going to down a bottle of Bronco Stop. Uh, that is what... That's the cough syrup I'm on at the moment. Actually, I'm mixing. I'll be honest, I'm mixing cough syrups at the moment. I'm on Benelin and Bronco Stop. And Bronco Stop really sounds like I should be able to sip it and then maybe fight an angry bull. But actually, it just makes me cough a lot and then feel sad. I demand a more appropriate name. How about a bottle of cough sadness? Perfect. Anyway, uh, thanks to you for being here or wherever you are. I mean, you're not all here. That'd be awful for you as you'd catch whatever this is that I have and then you'd cough through the show too and miss a lot of bits. Or if you timed it right, cough when I cough um, and then you wouldn't miss things, except you would because all the coughs will be edited out so you'll still miss things. But all I'm saying is that I'm glad you're not here, you know, for your sake, in the nicest way. Um, but yes, same old admin stuff, uh, except that I'm ill. So, um, quicker, you know, if you want to donate to the ko-fi.com forward slash bro or patreon.com forward slash bro then it'll save you buying me grapes flowers or a card telling me that i have man flu and to shut up um or you could review the show and i won't even mind if you write your derogatory thoughts about my obvious man flu on some itunes comments um if you also give the show five stars uh, i'm that shallow i won't care and i'm ill and it would definitely make me feel better definitely absolutely would <clears throat> um or you know just tell people to listen in uh, this show gets a very nice amount of listeners but what would really get rid of my cough as doctors definitely definitely agree would be having even more listeners like hundreds of thousands if possible i mean if it got millions then chances are i'd never get ill again i'm just saying think about it and if you don't think about it then i'll assume you're some sort of cruel doctor death type who revels in other sadness and frankly that means we can't be friends anyway though i suppose even if we were i wouldn't want you here so sort of redundant other admin stuff for this week includes the kids politics show uh, what i do with tutton at simple politics called how does this politics thing work then um it is next at the pound art center in caution on march the 30th which could have been the day after brexit but now might not be but now might also be. Why not bring your children age six plus to laugh at exactly how on earth we've rewritten things last 
last minute. It's a 2pm start and you can find tickets at poundarts.org.uk. Hopefully I won't have coughed myself to death by then. Um, then something that I won't be at, so my health status doesn't really matter anyway, could have coughed myself to death. Who will care? It doesn't matter. This brilliant charity comedy night um, in aid of women and children first uh, is going to go ahead anyway. Um, and that's a charity that supports women, children, mothers and babies in the poorest communities around the world. Um, the show's at the Leicester Square Theatre on the 13th of May and it's got comedians such as uh, Josh Widdicombe, Kerry Godleyman, John Robbins, Laura Lex, Beck Hill and Dane Baptiste among loads of other goodens. It's going to be brilliant and I'm gutted that I couldn't be part of it as I'm otherwise engaged slash dead from coughing to death. Um, but do grab tickets from the Leicester Square Theatre website or womenandchildrenfirst.org.uk forward slash comedy. And lastly, assuming I survive this week, um, there might be a little podcast gap in early April because um, I'll be dead from coughing. But also, that's when I'm moving flat and knowing the wonders of the internet, I probably won't have any as uh, it'll require a man to come round and patronisingly show me how to plug in a router that I'll already have plugged in or something. That's what always happens. So hopefully nothing um, will happen early April anyway and then it won't really matter. I'm sure it'll be fine. The news will be quiet. I mean, you know, look, hey, if something really stupid happens, I'll find a coffee shop with free Wi-Fi and just yell in the corner for five minutes and then load it up so you're not completely alone. Deal? Deal. On this week's show, there is Hazel Sheffield and Gareth Davis from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism all about their report on local councils selling off all their public assets to pay for staff redundancies. Yes, that's right, it does sound bleak. Comedy. Plus, I'm going to attempt to explain last week's Brexit votes, even though ultimately it doesn't really mean anything. But I guess, does anything mean anything, apart from my awful cough and the likelihood that I'm mere minutes away from hacking up at least one vital organ? Thanks for your obvious sympathy. Right, let's start with some of this. The problem with the spring statement being nestled in amongst all the Brexit voting is that no one really cared or had time to care what Philip Hammond announced. He could have said, I've bet all our money on a pig race, count oinkula for the win. And I reckon there's a chance it would have got through under all the noise of no deals and extensions. And hey, that makes sense, right? Because what is the point in putting in a ton of hard effort and then we thunk out of the EU without a deal and all the money spent using, I don't know, rockets to bring potatoes over from Estonia or training seagulls to deliver pottery to Sicily? And to be honest, if you had paid attention to the statement, then there wasn't a lot in there to particularly float the economic boat anyway. There was a whole, hey, aren't we doing well chat about the economy because the government will be borrowing less next year than the Office for Budget Responsibility predicted, which means we're now at a 10-year low for borrowing, which is great, but that doesn't quite balance out with the lack of specific funding for social care or the benefit freeze, which is continuing for at least another year. So hooray, you know, all well and good that the government don't need to borrow money, but it feels a lot like they're saying that as a way to punish their naughty kids. Oh no, they don't need ice cream, they'll be just fine, you know, as one of them keels over with low blood sugar. Hammond promised £100 million for police overtime to tackle knife crime, which is a bit weird. I mean, why would you want police overtime rather than, you know, more police officers? I can't imagine the best people to chase after teenagers with knives is a knackered, underpaid officer. Also, as was mentioned on last week's show, it's not just police that need extra funding in order to deal with knife crime. So this feels a bit like spending for dummies. OK, so knife crime, give the police some money. What next? Unemployment? Cool. Buy the job centre five new chairs. Done. And then what? Poverty? Oh, um, here's five chocolate coins for everyone. Yeah, idiots. There's a £3 billion affordable home scheme to build 30,000 new homes that will fall under the not-actually-affordable bracket and it'll still leave them short of their annual housing targets. £800 million is going towards an increase in non-NHS spending, which I guess is a nice way of saying that's all we're putting into absolutely everything else. And there was no mention of the current crisis in funding that councils are suffering from. 
Two years ago in the March budget, it was announced that there would be a green paper on social care with a public consultation and a look into funding for it. Yet here we are, 2019, and still nothing. You know, unless it's so green that it's had something else superimposed onto it the whole time. Phil, is that the green paper you've made to look like the really bored MPs behind you? Oh, and yeah, Hammond did promise free sanitary products in schools to end period poverty, but that only ends it if you're at school. I mean, what about the holidays? What about women in poverty who are too old to go to school? And what about, you know, just stopping poverty? It feels a bit like telling people who can't afford to feed their babies that it's okay. every nursery will have some tuck biscuits there, so that's that. Job done. But as the Chancellor said, none of this will happen if Brexit goes without a deal anyway. And if there is some amazing deal that appears and fixes everything, then hey, there's a whole £26.6 billion he can add into the budget. Which is nice, as Brexit has cost the UK £40 billion so far, according to the Bank of England. God, I wish I could work like that. You know, tell my landlord that this month I'm paying him a two-thirds increase on last month's rent, despite his protest that last month I only paid an eighth of what I should. Don't worry, I'll also be putting a fat sum of cash onto my credit card, which won't remotely make up for blitzing it all over the last three years. Still, I can slightly sympathise with old Phil. I mean, imagine putting a whole load of hard work in something and then bloody Brexit has the potential to ruin it within days. Try doing a podcast, Hammond. You'll see. You'll bloody see. If you listen to episode 133, the Chris Grayling special, which fittingly, according to listening stats, several of you failed to do, then you'll have heard me talk about the lack of funding in councils. I mean, there just isn't any. So how on earth are they meant to deal with the bins and whatever else it is they're meant to do? In the spring statement last week, Philip Hammond didn't even mention the £5 billion funding black hole that local councils are going to have to deal with by 2020. Now, some of you, like me, may have had a council tax letter through your door recently that said it had an extra increase in order to fund adult social care. And hey, look, I'm more than happy to support my local community needs, but it does kind of smart when that's mainly just because the government wants to spend it all on fridges for Matt Hancock to buy instead. But social care is just one of the areas councils are struggling with funding for, and some of their methods for dealing with this cash depletion are a bit odd. For example, the recent Sold From Under You report, which sounds like it's about the time I sat on an auction item at the Antiques Roadshow, but it's actually about the 12,000 council properties that have been sold off in order to pay for staff redundancies. Yes, you've no longer got a youth centre because some people in food safety had to go. There's no winner in that sentence. You've lost out. They've lost out. It's the financial policy equivalent of listening to this podcast. So I dropped a line to the authors of that very report. And luckily, two of them, Hazel Sheffield and Gareth Davis, got back to me and said they were very happy to tell me all about how bad things are for councils, why they're selling off everything and exactly what the third bin I have does, because I'm really not sure. And I'm starting to think it's just for unwanted guests. OK, I didn't ask them that last one. Oh, and... um. <laughs> Excuses, excuses. This isn't the best recording sound-wise. I say to you with my voice that isn't the best for recording sound-wise. Um, I spoke to Hazel and Gareth on their mobiles at the same time because technology is amazing. But also, as you'll hear, or maybe not hear, if you're listening on a train or while piloting a plane or driving a tank, it's not that amazing. I have tested it on a few people, and by that I mean my wife and daughter, the latter of whom just really wasn't bothered and kept trying to eat her own foot. So I think it should be OK. But if it isn't, then please do type me an email and then delete it before you send it and go do something useful. Thanks. Here's Hazel and Gareth. Hi, Gareth and Hazel. Um, you have done quite an extensive uh, report into the uh, the selling off of public property um, by councils. What prompted you to in- investigate it in, I mean, to, to such an extent? I think it was 12,000 properties you investigated, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I was running a project called Barney Emergency 
about 2016, looking at community solutions, which is kind of the other side of this, when communities have to step in and fill in the gaps from public services retreating. And I, over the course of that project, I'd had this, I, I was aware that there was this huge um, gap in my reporting, which is what was actually happening at local councils. Um, so I think I first got in touch with Gareth um, in 2016. I'd always been a huge fan of Bureau Local and the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. And I asked him if he would be up for looking into this as a line of inquiry. It made sense for us because um, for the sort of previous 12 months, we've been doing very um, data-led investigation into um, the state of local council finances or predicting which councils, using publicly available data, could we predict which councils were under the most financial pressure and which ones would follow in the, the footsteps of Northamptonshire, which was the first in nearly 20 years to effectively go bankrupt. So it worked, it tied in really well with that because we'd done the, the top level figures, but what we really wanted to do was look at an impact of these funding cuts and this is a really good example of it. And just out of interest from that early data, what sort of, uh, you know, obviously we heard about Northamptonshire on the news. That was quite a big story at the time. Uh, how many councils were you seeing go that way? What was the, what was the data showing you before you even started this investigation? We were showing about 20, 30 councils heading in the same direction, having sharing similar signs of financial distress as Northamptonshire. None, none at that point at the same level, um, but it also highlighted that there were of those councils that were under the biggest pressure all of them were, were county councils um, because there's a particular pressure within that structure of local government um, as Northamptonshire is a county council so that was a big kind of new thing that jumped out that was that county councils were in particular trouble. And so did you have any idea of, of the extent uh, that, that you would then discover that things were being sold off uh, by councils and then in, in uh, especially then you found uh, in order to fund staff redundancy. So, I mean, was it far more widespread than you'd imagined? Well, with the redundancies um, angle, this has all came come, come about from the period of research that we and Hazel did um, ahead of submitting the FOIs because it's a really important um, process to make sure that one, the information you're, you're asking for um, isn't already available online or elsewhere and two that you know you make sure that your FYIs are as accurate as possible so when you're basically that means that your reporting is more accurate and we don't want to have is six months down the line an issue to come up with the way you've worded the FOI which kind of undermines the story and in terms of when we're doing that research I found um, a couple of very prominent examples of councils um, who'd spent the money um, on spend the money from selling assets, publicly public spaces, on funding redundancies. And I thought, well, that struck me as, as we kind of worded it, which is sort of double blow to communities because they're losing public spaces and they're losing jobs. Um, and it just really curious as to, as to the extent to which that was happening elsewhere. And it happened that it wasn't just those couple of couple. It was, it was almost 40 councils were doing it. Um, forgive me as well if this is an obvious uh, question to an extent, but what has led to councils having to do this i mean I, I presume that austerity is a large chunk of it and, and, and cuts but is there more to it than that that is obviously obviously the over overarching cause um without a doubt but it's also the other things where councils are restricted in the ways in which they can actually raise raise money they can't raise council tax beyond a certain point without a public referendum 
some councils are going to be limited in terms of raising money from business rates because they have less um, businesses in their in their in their local authority area, um, and as a result, they lobbied the count the government for uh, greater freedom to use the money from assets towards basically propping up their budgets, and then they were given that power. And I think if, if you give councils that are sort of in a desperate situation that ability, some of them will take advantage of that. Yeah, I was just going to say I think it's well known now that how much. Um of the government grant to councils has been lost now. Councils are, have lost around 60% of their funding from the government. And next year, half of the councils in England are going to lose funding from central government entirely. And obviously this puts them uh, you know, in dire straits. They need to find ways to fund basic services at this point, caring for the elderly, transportation, libraries, community centres, all those sorts of things. So um, the change that came about in 2016 was this change to this ruling on flexible use of capital receipts, George Osborne decided to allow councils to use the money from selling buildings to start funding changes to services. They couldn't use it to plug budgets directly, but they could use it to fund changes or transformations of services and redundancies counted as part of that. And that's how you get this kind of um, result where councils are, are using the proceeds to, I guess, for redundancy packages for their most expensive staff. And, I mean, what are the effects of selling off all these books? Because they're needing to cover costs and kind of cover areas like social care where they can, but surely selling off some of these buildings affects people that needed them that would have come under areas of social care. I mean, doesn't it have a kind of cyclical detrimental effect across the board? Yeah, I mean, I think both in both Gareth and my reporting, we've, we talked to people who whose lives have been seriously affected by the sell-off of these buildings. You're not talking just about, you know, bricks and mortar. Suddenly there's, you know, a community centre that's in private hands rather than public hands. These these buildings have had access changes, you know, care homes or adult daycare centres I was looking into. And suddenly the lights have gone out, you know, and, and people who needed adult social care in the day were having to find alternative provisions. Parents were setting up services or um, people were spending more time with their with elderly relatives because they didn't have care homes to go to. And I know Gareth spoke to some um, people who were uh, who had been moved up a boxing club who've been moved on on twice. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that, Gareth. Yeah, I think the, the, the point um, that jumped out to me was that in, in, in kind of a lot of cases, these places that were being sold off had been closed already. Um, and in, for some local authorities and the local government association, they were very keen to make that point that, oh, well, we're not, you know, these things are, you know, not used anymore. But the reason why they weren't used is because they were, you know, the services that were based in them had been closed due to funding cuts. And mm -hmm. it's very much, as you said, it is a cyclical nature. So, you know, back in 2010-11, funding the austerity agenda began, and, and gradually, since then, councils have had more and more of their funding taken away, and as a result, services have closed. And due to that, the buildings those and land those, those services were connected to go unused, and therefore councils feel empowered and, and, and able to sell them off, then to also fund further service cuts and reductions in funding, which will inevitably lead to, again, the uh, more buildings and public spaces being uh, unused and they will be sold off and eventually the councils will be down to the bare bones and, and, and it isn't a long-term sustainable even if councils are doing this responsibly and by the rules it's not a long-term 
sustainable policy to sell off assets to balance your budget because eventually you run out of assets. Um, mm. And what's needed is a, a fundamental change in the way councils are funding, which is in, includes a massive, you know, an increase to a certainly sort of pre-2014, 13 levels, um, if not higher. But uh, sort of, uh, Hazel, I think you mentioned earlier that from 2020, that even more are going to have their budgets cut. So, and and I I think there's there's not much. Um, uh, I think it's quite hazy as to where funding's going to be coming from for after 2020 for most councils, isn't it? Well, the reliance yeah, is going to be on. Um, sorry, Carol. No, you go ahead. Well, the idea is that councils will become effectively self-funding because of business rates. So instead of giving a portion of their business rates over to the central government, they'll be retaining all of it. Um, but obviously that one that's taken them a long time just to roll out even the pilot projects of that particular policy and two that obviously benefits some councils way more than it does others because it, it depends on your business rate base and, and, and basically the kind of prominence and, and, and of the businesses in your area the fewer you have the less you can actually raise money that way um what they're consulting on other changes but again it all seems that it doesn't involve an injection of new money it involves a redistribution of money and whoever you know however however that system works someone will lose out yeah i think you you can sort of you get a clue to what's going to happen to councils when you look at something um like northamptonshire where you can see that it's kind of shrunk so much now it's almost got, become just an agency for commercial you know commercial services it's called cool staff and thousands just 150 it's got these four commercial bodies who are responsible for child protection vulnerable adult health and improvements and um i wonder if we'll see more councils just kind of shrinking so that they i guess they're an agency for commercial services rather than actually being able to provide them themselves and uh, i mean you mentioned northampshire again there why have we not seen that happen with more councils is it because they've been rapidly selling things off before they can you know was, was Northamptonshire kind of a warning signal that caused this to, to happen more rapidly yeah I think so I mean I just got my letter of my um, council tax treaty from Camden Council yesterday and it says you know we are now reaching a tipping point I, I think that that's it's definitely the start of we, you know we're going to as the government grant falls to zero we're going to start seeing um, the effects of this much more widely Gareth did some incredible reporting on Peterborough that showed that already councils are using the same sorts of illegal potentially illegal practices to kind of make their budgets work that Northamptonshire was doing before it went bust. And how many, also, I mean, the one thing we haven't touched on is how many job losses have there been from all these staff redundancies that are being paid for? That must be having quite an effect on the areas as well because councils hire quite a lot of people. I mean, it's quite difficult because of the transparency issue. Um, I spend on redundancy that comes from the sale of public assets to the number of redundancies. We do know, for example, in Bristol, in the year before this policy was used, there were 39 redundancies. In the year after, they used around about £5 million of, of money raised from asset sales to fund redundancies. Those numbers of redundancies increased to 401, so it's more than a tenfold increase. Um, but because councils will tell you you can't uh, connect exactly uh, the, the sum of money from a particular sale to um, a particular policy. We just know that one generally was used to fund the other. It's quite difficult. What we did from our study is, is that we know that there were more than 
since 2014-15, there have been more than 75,000 redundancies in local authorities across the country. Um, and it's has huge impacts, obviously, on local communities, but on the way councils are run, has, that has connections with the privatisation, the outsourcing of, of public um, services and whether that affects quality. And there's, there's huge kind of other things that to, to explore just with that issue. Yeah, seventy five thousand is an awful lot of people. That's really, and that and that's just from the 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 councils that got back to you as well. Because I know you had several that uh, didn't respond to the freedom of information request. So, well, that that that's pretty much a hundred percent that one. There were two sets of FOIs, and where we didn't get where those count where some councils in that particular FOI refused to tell us that information. I got that information from their accounts. So, it, that's pretty much hundred percent. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And we'll be back with Hazel and Gareth in a minute, but first... It feels necessary to do one of these this week, but what can I tell you that will still be relevant within a few days? Well, the easy answer is, it'll still be exhausting and shit, and whatever happens, that's going to be true. You're welcome. Uh, The hard answer, though, well, there's a lot of those, and I thought it might be useful to do a shouty quick answer decomplication session, which is my snappy title for what will happen now. What happened last week? Loads, but also not loads. May's deal got rejected again, but not as harshly, but still harshly. And all of this feels like she can swap the deal for my teenage love life, and it would kind of be the same. Although, if that is true, I suggest she gets a deal that involves being part of the school play, because that really worked a treat. And then the next night, having no deal under any arrangement, got rejected too. Even though the Conservatives had whipped their lot to vote against it, but they didn't listen because no one likes May. But that wasn't... Oi! What? Why did some Conservatives talk down no deal and then vote for it? Ah, well, because of one of the amendments on the rejecting a no-deal motion was the Spellman Amendment, which sounds like it incorporates a really boring education-based superhero into proceedings. But what it actually did was remove the date of March 29th from the government's wording. 
Originally, if the motion had been voted for, it would have meant no deal was off the table for the upcoming Brexit date. But with the Smelman Amendment, then it means it's off for any date and whatever happens, which means MPs aren't as pressured to vote for May's deal again. Except they are, as it's not a legally binding arrangement. So basically, it's still a big old pay attention to my feelings signifier and a nice smack in the chops for El Governmento, who lost yet another vote. Slam. What was the Mott House Amendment thingy? Isn't he a character in The Simpsons? No, that's Millhouse, idiot. The Malthouse Amendment was really stupid and basically involved going to the EU with our own backstop that we'd managed that wasn't possible and then having a sort of managed no deal that also isn't possible. And look, it was just stupid. It was really stupid and no one liked it and it got rejected, so who cares? And hey, none of that was legally binding anyway, so it could still be a no deal if no one agrees a deal. Yes, that is some of your life that you'll never, ever get back. And then what happened? Then Labour leader and distressed human fleece Jeremy Corbyn said, well, we have to extend Article 50 now, even though he's one of the people who said it should be triggered immediately two years ago and that the vote on delaying Article 50 was going to happen anyway. So really, why didn't he just shout, you're all dickheads, and then do a dance as ultimately it would have been the same result, only he'd actually have gained popularity. So then there was a vote on extending Article 50 and the amendment for a second referendum got voted down. Labour members were whipped to abstain against it and some, like Ruth Smith, resigned just to avoid the whip but so she could vote against it. God, isn't it all so weird? But it would have lost anyway as no one wants another referendum yet, even the second referendum people who also abstained on their own amendment because they realised no one likes them either. Then Hillary Benn's amendment for Parliament to shout fuck this shit and snatch Brexit off May and try and do it properly, that lost by just two votes. Two votes, Z-O-M-G-W-T-F-B-B-Q. Then Labour's amendment was for Parliament's fine time to find an approach that wasn't May's deal, but that was rejected by a majority of 16 because they don't want May's deal, but they also don't not want May's deal. And anyway, the government motion did pass, which meant multi-wins for the government, which they were happy with because they don't win anything anymore because cheaters never win. And anyway, none of that's legally binding either, so what is the actual fuck? Point. And why did Brexit Secretary and human con bud Stephen Bartley give a closing speech for the need for an extension then vote against it? Mainly because he's an idiot. I mean, he also says the closing argument was to make sure people voted against Ben's deal and then because Conservative ministers had a free vote for the main motion, he didn't want anyone to frustrate the process even though he doesn't seem to understand any process and everyone's frustrated now the Brexit Secretary isn't voting in line with the Prime Minister anymore though to be fair, it's not like he does anything anyway. So then May was going to bring back a meaningful vote on her deal three, right? Yes, and she spent all week trying to butter up Tory rebels who all told her, OK, I'll vote for it, but only if you resign immediately afterwards, which feels like it probably wasn't the answer May wanted. I mean, imagine being a door-to-door salesperson like that. Will you buy this series of books? Sure, but only if you drop dead as soon as I make the purchase. May and Hammond have also been having meetings with the DUP to get them accept May's deal, which they didn't agree to because they were too busy looking like they needed to disapprove of the fact that you smiled about something. The plan was either for May to bring back her vote this week before she went to the EU Leaders Summit where they'd all have fine ways not to sit next to her at lunch in case she started telling them about her deal that was all new again, or she'd meet EU leaders and ask for an extension with no reason to ask for an extension, then bring back her vote next week, which would be stupid if there was an extension. And yes, all of this, again, is really, it's really stupid. But... But today, Speaker John Burkow made a surprise announcement where he brought up a 400-year-old law that was all about MPs not being allowed to repeat a motion within the same session if it was the same or very similar to a previous motion. And basically, I would usually rail against how out of touch our Parliament is, but then suddenly it's all about a 400-year-old law and I'm like, damn, I'm back and the HOC is great. The motion is from Erskine May, which isn't a relation to Theresa May, but actually the most authoritative reference book on parliamentary procedure. So yes, pretty much the opposite of the Prime Minister in every way. Authoritative, referential and a book as opposed to a metallic clunk machine. 
the number 10 spokesperson took over four hours to respond, but when they eventually did, they said, this is something that requires proper consideration, which means May will leave it till last minute and then just bring back her deal again without any changes. So now she's got to go to the EU Leaders' Summit and still ask for an extension, and there won't be a reason why, other than that, no one can decide on what they want to do. Would the EU give the UK an extension anyway? Possibly not. Michel Barnier said there's not a unanimous consensus to do so at the moment. Plus, right-wing idiots Nigel Farage and Andy Wigmore, among others, say they've been telling the far-right half of the Italian coalition government to block it, and other Eurosceptics have been lobbying Polish and Hungarian parliaments too. So I'm guessing an extension to at least June the 30th is likely, which is what May wants, and the EU says it will turn terminate the UK's membership by July the 1st if they don't hold European elections which have to take place between May the 23rd and May the 26th. But EU President and Amalgamation of Hellboy and an Egg, Donald Tusk, says he'll advise members that Britain may need a long period to rethink its approach. So they might insist on an extension of, say, two years, which probably still won't be enough because what will happen is everyone will just argue for two more years and then May will bring back exactly the same deal just in, I don't know, 2021. A long extension's needed, right? Yeah, except there's worries that a longer extension would mean all the other EU countries would demand more things, you know, like Spain wanting more rights over Gibraltar and further limits over the UK's influence over EU laws that would have to be subject to. And while I kind of think, well, it serves us right, I also never like the idea of being the only ones not having a say in a democracy. Oh, and businesses, of course, would generally be losing their share all the different end dates. Apparently, Transport Secretary and insomnia personified Chris Grayling faces a potential bill of £28 million just to renegotiate his ferry contract, which currently only covers an exit date of March the 29th. But let's be fair, Grayling could lose £28 million down the back of a sofa that didn't have any cushions and was actually a large dog that had never even seen a sofa before. So really, doesn't make much difference. And of course, by the time you hear all this, all of that could be wrong. Helpful? No! You're welcome. And now, back to Hazel and Gareth. And are you, are you finding that, that people... Because I know that you, you've got the, the sold from under your hashtag that you've been using on Twitter and ask people to share stories. Um, and obviously, uh, Hazel, you've got your, your Far Nearer project as well. But are you finding that people are, uh, are aware of this? Because... I, I, I sort of fairly have noticed that it's not really been in the news very much. Obviously, Brexit has dominated pretty much everything. But are, are people noticing that their spaces are, are disappearing, apart from the people that actively use, you know, specific ones? I think we all know, um, even if it's not being in, if it's not in the press every day, I think we all know that what's, what our public services are lacking or what change, you know. I think even if you, you know, you know your council tax is going up, you know you have to wait longer to see a doctor, you know um, if school funding is changing, for example. But um, I think what the investigation does for the first time is, is shows exactly the number of public spaces that have been lost, certainly, and through that you're able to tell stories of the people that have been directly affected by buildings being lost. Sure. What sort? Of, I mean, um, you were mentioning obviously earlier some uh, the, the the boxing uh, gym and, and places that are being closed as well. What other sort of stuff are you hearing um, about? Other? I mean, I, I I'll tell you a, a very personal one. I'm in uh, Harringay, and uh, our town hall has just been sold off, which is where I got married a couple of years ago. So I'm personally very sad about it. But it's being turned into a luxury hotel with a very small amount of. Um, workspace and social space compared to what they were promising um and are you finding a lot of, there must be a lot of personal stories like that the interesting thing about the interesting thing about that particular sale actually is the council didn't include that in their information really yeah yeah we've got a reporter a reporter there who's very curious she's she's, she's um, done a load of stuff in hand she used to work as a local reporter there and she was very confused to find that when she looked at the data that particular sale wasn't on there and it turns out the council had uh, mysteriously left that one off the FY, which seems slightly strange given it's probably the most 
prominent thing that they've done. Oh, wow. It, it, it sort of uh, showed up in our local elections. Uh, things sort of changed as a result of uh, the last council selling off quite a lot of things. So people kind of made their voices heard then, but then it got blamed on various other electoral reasons. And it was very interesting. But I, I wonder if you're getting a lot more kind of... You must be getting quite a lot of personal stories like that because public spaces, I think, uh, people don't realise how important they are and what role they've played in people's lives, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that's the beauty of working with um, the BRA Local. Like their network is hundreds of hundreds of journalists who are all able to access this data and start looking into like the way that communities have been affected by this. So certainly, I've really enjoyed learning about. Well, enjoyed is maybe the wrong word, but I find it really interesting to 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 read the reporting of all the local press that have got involved on this. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And um, I. One of the the places I've read about recently um, was uh, Preston Council, which is is doing something called guerrilla localism, which is trying to outsource things just well i say it's not outsourcing it's it's uh getting workers in from its very local area in a way to sustain itself and keep keep working there do you think that's a way forward for is is that one of the the methods that could save things in the future yeah i've done lots of reporting in preston actually i think preston would be preston council certainly are the first people to say that what they're doing isn't going to replace the budget cuts and you know they just they agreed their budget i think it was last week um, or the week before, and they're in exactly the same situation as everybody else. You know, they're they're losing their, their central government grants, they're struggling to afford their basic services, um, and really what they've done successfully is to start thinking about ways that the council can build partnerships with other civic bodies in the city, like the university, uh, police, um, different colleges, um, and thinking about ways that they can um, kind of incubate what wealth that they have um, they're doing that through cooperatives, so um, worker-owned businesses, so rather than um, the profits of um, any kind of business leaving the city, they're trying to keep more wealth within Preston itself, but they're also thinking about really interesting ideas, like um, setting up a regional bank so that they can provide credit lines to people so they don't have to get payday loans and to support more local businesses. So yeah, definitely there's some cities that are working on these kind of community wealth-building ideas that while they're not definitely not a solution to the council funding crisis, they are. I think they're coming out of this need for alternative thinking and innovative ideas, and it'd be really interesting to see what comes of that. Sure. Yeah. I guess it's going to. It depends on where you live, and if if your council's kind of keen to progress with something like that. I mean, if if you. Um... I, I know that on your on your, on, on the bottom of your report as well, you're talking about um, save our public spaces and, and campaigns like that. What what can people do if they are worried about spaces that are under threat? What's the? I mean, is there is there anything? Do, do the local community have any power in this at the moment? I mean, they you know there are various mechanisms that are supposed to be set up that um, should empower or at least give op- communities greater opportunity to take over the running of uh, council um sort of council-owned spaces when a council wants to sell them off we know that from the research done by a locality which is a sort of an umbrella group that represents that sort of community groups that there isn't a wide enough kind of take up of these particular rules um for various reasons and i think that the concern that i would have and i think they've echoed is that the this particular power that was that came into to place in 2016 that enabled councils to use the money from they get from selling assets to put towards their running costs de-incentivizes councils from 
transferring things to the community because obviously that most for the most part will not generate them a capital receipt which is the sort of name for the money they get from selling them off and if you don't get that money you can't use that for service reform to reduce costs over the long term so i think there's a contradiction um here in that you've got this policy on the one hand that does encourage councils to sell to the private sector um for for as much money as possible and the the, the desire from people for, for people to actually take over the running of these spaces and so to keep them in community use i mean is there any indication at government level that there's any interest in changing the, the these policies i mean i assume again everything's so full of brexit at the moment that it's being generally ignored or have you heard of any kind of wiggle room or any interest from any ministers i don't think so because it for, for years the local government association lobbied for these changes they wanted to i mean the the previously the idea that you could only the rule that you could only spend the money um, from selling an asset on effectively other assets was a kind of foundation stone of local authority finances. Councils wanted to change that because they wanted to use the, they, they felt that the decisions of how those assets should be, what should happen to them should be made locally. And they wanted to use that money to, to effectively pop up their budgets. I think there would be, you know, a strong opposition from council, councils from the local government association. And there are, you know, this government, the Conservative government, is far more in tow to what the district councils, um, their basic, their shire members, want than um, is ideal. And I think there would be no, they'd be very reluctant to to go back to the old system. And it's the, currently, this, these current rules run till 2021, and I wouldn't be surprised to see them extended beyond that because I think the councils like them. But I think what we need to do as journalists, as members of the public, is to is to have more information and more transparent system where we can decide for ourselves and the public can decide whether these decisions are, the, are, are right or not. Because I think that at the moment they are really being denied a lot of the key facts that would arm them with you know, making that decision. Mm. One of the problems with the assets of community value that Gareth was talking about earlier is that communities, if they want to protect a building, a community space from being sold for the by a council, they have to register it as an asset of community value. So they have to, for example, your town hall, they would have had to say before the council showed any interest in selling it, oh, we, you know, we value this space, we want it to register it as this asset of community value, it's called, and then it goes on a register. So if the council decides to sell it, it has to first ask the community, oh, we're going to sell this building, are you interested in buying it. But of course, the councils have no obligation to tell the community if, if they're going to sell any other building. If it's not on this register, they can go about their business and, and get rid of these assets really kind of under the radar, hence the name of the investigation. And the community has no kind of recourse. Once their wills are in motion, it's very unlikely that they're able to raise as much money as a developer or a private company to, 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 to fight to keep that building in, in community or even public ownership, you know. So in, uh, I'm very aware that every, nearly all the interviews I ever do for this podcast end quite uh, sort of bleakly like that, which is because of the state things. Which is very sad. So I, I just wonder if you have anyone, um, anywhere that you could recommend people check out or get involved with or what, what can people do now or what would you advise that people do now um, if, I mean, if they're interested in saving public space or at least interested in knowing more um, about what can be done? Uh, well, there's the locality website that we link to through the um, social Monday map. 
Um, they have loads of information about how communities can register assets as assets of community value, which is kind of the first step to protecting them. Um, anyone else you'd recommend, Gareth? Well, I'd say, on the other hand, also, if they're just interested in what's going on in their local community and they might want to take a part in kind of supporting local journalism, that they could, um, it would be great if they would sign up to the Bureau Local Network. Just find you know, Google Bureau Local, click on that page, and there'll be a link to join the network there. And that's even if they don't, you know, if they, they just have just a, a little bit of curiosity about how investigations are done, um, it could be, you know, we're more than welcome to, to come along. Many thanks to Hazel and Gareth. You can find the Sold From Under You report on the Bureau of Investigative Journalism's website at thebureauinvestigates.com, uh, where you can find the link to the Bureau Local too, and I'll pop the link in the podcast info as well. Huffington Post have done a summary on their site too, uh, and Hazel can be found on Twitter at Hazel Sheffield. Her website with links to her journalism and filmmaking is hazelsheffield.com, and one of her main projects, Far Nearer, about local projects and people building economic resilience in the UK, is at farnearer.org or on Twitter at far underscore nearer. Gareth is on Twitter at Gareth underscore Davis, that's IES09, and you can find links to his works at the aforementioned Bureau of Investigative Journalism site. I'm getting some lovely suggestions from you lot as to who to interview at the moment, and as always, not all of them reply to my very almost begging-like emails asking to interview them, so I still need more suggestions, please. Uh, do I need someone who can update on something this podcast has covered before? What other new subjects can I ask someone about? Who can this show give a voice to that needs one, albeit a small voice that's often badly recorded? All thoughts welcomed. I'd love to get someone on to talk about defence, if you know or follow anyone who can do that and isn't a weird, war-loving bellend. Uh, my current basic research shows that this is quite hard to do, so please, please enlighten me if that's not the case but i'm open to all suggestions except between 12 and 1 p.m when i'm closed for lunch <laughs> so please do contact me at Papa bro on twitter the partly political broadcast group on facebook the contact page at partly political broadcast.co.uk or email me at partly political broadcast at gmail.com that is really hard to say when you've got a chesty cough and um, the last two options also end up in the same inbox ha i've had you all fooled all along um or of course you could write it in a note that you hide along a dirt track through a field and somewhere along a ridiculously long stone wall pop it under a particular stone in a box beneath some soil but then chances are morgan freeman will find it first and while he'll read it in a better voice than i would he'd probably just be a bit confused and overall disappointed all in all as always it's probably just best to email And that's it for this week's Partly Political Broadcast and, as it probably sounds like, my voice. Uh, thank you for sticking with this uh, horrible-sounding episode. Um, and also, I mean, really, an episode where at the moment you probably get just as much input into current events by listening to someone throw garden tools down some stairs. So your ear absorption of this show is very much appreciated. Again, please do donate to the show via the Kofi or Patreon if you can. Review the show on your pod applicators of choice and tell other people to listen uh, in any way that you can. Maybe write it in all the Bibles in every hotel room you stay in so that this show gains a listenership of people who actually read Bibles in hotel rooms, and in a desperate attempt to please the audience, I'll swap all political content for lounge jazz versions of classic hymns. Or, you know, maybe I won't. Thanks again to Acast for hosting this background noise in amongst its orchestra of sounds, to my brother, the last sceptic, for all the tunes, and to Cat Dave for typing up the linear liner notes every goddamn week. This will be back next week when Theresa May will have told EU leaders that she needs an extension because she has a dentist appointment and the EU allow her four extra days during which she just keeps presenting her completely unchanged deal to Parliament every two minutes until she's sectioned. Bye. <coughs>
This week's show is brought to you by Burkow's Little Book of 400-Year-Old Solutions. Bit of a headache? Check John's Little Book, as chances are you need some bloodletting. Good luck. Need some fashion tips, ladies? How about a debilitating farthingale for under your dress? Comfy until you get splinters. Got guests coming by and struggling to think of what fancy food to serve? Well, the Burkow 400-year-old menu won't let you down. With suggestions of how to make lashings of plain porridge made with sewage water or plain porridge made with the barn of an orphan slave. Mm-mm. Burkow's little book of 400-year-old solutions for when you need a little bit of history to solve life's menial mysteries. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 